All right, if you brought a Bible with you this morning, I would invite you to find Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. When my wife was being evangelized, the pastor who was in her and her husband's home looked at her and asked her the, that diagnostic question of diagnostic questions. Marilyn, if you were to die, do you have 100% certainty you'd go to heaven? And she thought about it for a little while, and then she replied, uh, yes, after a few years in purgatory. If uh, you are a Roman Catholic or a former Roman Catholic, you understand the, the doctrine of purgatory is a Roman Catholic doctrine invented, uh, you know, around five, six hundred A.D., Pope Gregory. Uh, basically, the Catholics uh, made up a middle ground for unrepentant sinners to go to, to be temporarily punished because they didn't quite complete the sanctification process in this life. It's sort of between heaven and hell. And if you think it has no practical ramifications for today, consider the fact that the Vatican just last week offered years off of purgatory for Catholics if they would follow the Pope's tweets. I kid you not. Just the other day, I was talking to a young lady about Christ, and I uh, asked her that very same question. And, you know, I mean, she, this was a hard question for the young lady. She, she didn't quite deem herself as worthy to go to heaven, and she certainly didn't like the idea of going to hell. So she said, I'd probably go somewhere in between. But I had to tell her, I'm sorry, that's not possible. There's no middle ground. There's no middle ground. And you see throughout the life of Jesus and the narratives in the Gospels, he, he's never giving any middle ground to anybody, is he? He's always laying down the gauntlet, no matter what he's talking about. And such is the case in this encounter he has with the disciples, and namely John. We like middle grounds. In fact, if we didn't have a middle ground, we'd create one, depending on the situation. But I want you to look at two verses, and then we're going to look at the verses that surround it. That'll help us to understand it a little bit better. Verse 49, and that's where it says, John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him, because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him. The one who is not against you is for you. Jesus gave no middle ground. Mark's gospel, which deals with this same story, puts Jesus' answer like this. Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterward speak evil of me. Let me just ask you as we get going here this morning, what is your attitude toward those who love Christ, they love the gospel of the Lord Jesus, they love his word, but they don't quite follow things the way you do. I'm here to say to you this morning that on the preponderance and the authority 
and the veracity of the Word of God, there is no middle ground. We have no idea who this guy was that John and company came upon. Obviously, he's not one of the 12 who were originally commissioned to do miracles. Who was this guy anyway? I mean, how many of them, how many like him were there out there? Apparently not many. And yet, now listen to this, God providentially, and he saw fit to put it into the scripture. God providentially allowed the disciples of Christ to come upon him while he was doing miracles, no less. And that is incredibly instructive to me and I think to us. I hope we find some lesson in it today. It seems, at least, that Jesus is affirming the result of his ministry. Would you agree with that? Done in his name as a verification that he's for Christ. Notice that the disciples were not debating the results. They, did, you know, they say, we saw someone casting out demons, not we saw someone attempting to cast out demons. Remember that. In fact, in another encounter with his enemies in John chapter 10, Jesus said these epic words. He said, if I'm, if I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, what's he say? Believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I'm in the father. And more succinctly, Jesus gave a little proverb in Matthew 11 when he said, wisdom is justified by her children or by her works. The word works means children. The offspring of wisdom is good works. Now, let me be quick. This is a, a little bit of a divert. This is a little bit of a, I have to explain myself here. Okay, a little disclaimer. I am not, and I don't think the scripture promotes pragmatism. Pragmatism is a philosophy that basically says all that really matters in life is that which works. If I see something working over there, I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it mine. We reject that. Philosophical pragmatists basically reject absolute truth. They reject the word of God. Uh, and, and they go for whatever fits the moment. It, it often referred to as relativism. The whole postmodern generation in which we live is literally built on relativism. It's built on pragmatism. Philosophical and theological pragmatism. Truth is a moving target. Whatever, whatever the people group over here, whatever the tribe all agrees on, that's the truth. That's what works. That's what we go with. And we outrightly reject that. Pragmatism creeps into the church when the church just clamors after every fad that's out there. Every pop this and pop that. In order to get the results Pragmatism in the church is a results-based faith. So music and dress and edginess and uh, uh, the use of images and cool venues, 
across America for the last 20 years, we've seen the mainline churches sort of look at what God is doing in other churches and saying, oh, I get it. We need a praise band. And then they do that, and they're still dead. That's pragmatism. Jermaine Rhine, a pastor, wrote an article titled, I was a pragmatist. And he was, and he still is, pastor of a church that was growing. They were evangelizing people. A gospel-preaching church, but not a gospel-centered church. He found himself just grabbing everything that was out there that seemed to work in other venues. And he was exhausted. He concludes this article that I read the other day with these words. At the end of my seven year, my first seven years, my church generously granted me a three-month sabbatical. I told the elders I planned to spend the time hunting for the, quote, right model for our growing church. My plan was to visit over a dozen churches all over the country to find the best ministry template. It was the ultimate pragmatist pilgrimage. But instead of finding the right church to imitate, I found something else on my sabbatical. The Bible. End quote. Listen, Christianity and the church that came out of Christianity is based on certain facts. Facts based on scripture. Like 1 Corinthians 15. This is the gospel. Christ died for your sins. According to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again from the dead. According to the scriptures. Our faith is based on unchanging, objectionable, uh, uh, objective rather, Unmoving fact. And we believe that the truth of the gospel, if it is believed, has a dynamism all of its own. And what we mean by that is, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the what? It's the what? It's the power of God to everyone who believes. And so, while we believe Christianity is based on objective fact, we also believe that those who place their faith in the one true God through his son Jesus, they are changed. There is a dynamism that virtually changes the recipient of the gospel so that we become new creations. That, the result is fruit. Observable evidence that you and I have actually believed. Remember John the Baptist comes along and all these individuals want to get, on, get in on the train ride. And he says, whoa, ho, you, can, you need to bring forth fruit that befits repentance. Ooh. And Jesus said, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And here's why I did. So that you might have a result factor. So that you would bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. A farmer that has no fruit in his crop plows his crop under. Why? Because it serves no purpose. There are no results. It does no good. It's taken up space, just like some of you. Here's the point. While our ministry is not based on results, it expects results. Because God expects results that come out of his word, out of his gospel, out of the dynamism of the gospel itself. Now, back to our story. John is beside himself. He has, 
settled in his heart to be with Jesus. He's, he's a part of the original core group, right? But he has discovered somebody outside the paradigm. He's discovered somebody who's not in his little follower group. And yet this dude seems to love Jesus and proclaim his power. What's more, he's getting results. People are getting healed. And yet John tells him to stop. Stop doing what you're doing. Why? Why? What would provoke John and the others to stop this man from doing a good thing? I'm asking you the question. Pride, in a word, pride. Only by pride comes contention. Have you ever read that? Now, this is where the context starts to get very interesting. If you'll skip down to verse 40 and look what happens here, there is a, there is a miracle in the making. A man comes to the disciple. He actually comes to Jesus because his disciples couldn't pull it off. Remember that miracle? We actually studied it a few months ago. And uh, he comes to Jesus, and he, the reason he comes to Jesus, he says, verse 40, I begged your disciples to cast the demon out, but they could what? They could not. Now, Mark tells us, now, now listen, listen, they had just, uh, listen, grab the context here. The disciples had just unsuccessfully cast a demon. They didn't cast a demon out. Jesus had to do it. In fact, Matthew and Mark's accounts of that story tell us that secretly the disciples took Jesus into a house and they said, hey, would you tell us why this didn't work for us? And Jesus says, well, because you don't have much faith. Okay. You need prayer and you need fasting. Apparently prayer and fasting are somehow tied into faith. So, they're low on that too, apparently. So, what's that got to do with anything? They now run into a dude who is actually good at casting out. He, he's successfully casting people out. Let me just tell you something. There is nothing more provoking to a minister than to run into another minister who is more success, successful than he is at doing the same thing. And I think something like that's going on here. They just failed an attempt. They run into a guy who's doing quite well, actually, and he's not a part of their group. Now, it gets even more interesting because, I mean, I mean again, we're so competitive. I, I, was, I was thinking, I was reminded of the story I shared years ago about the, the pastor who gave the announcement at the end of the year. He said he was sad to report that the, the membership uh, role was down about 25 people, but happy, happy to share that the church down the street didn't fare any better. Pride. Now, verse 46 says, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. This is really funny. In spite of an unsuccessful attempt to cast out a demon, 
They're arguing over who's the greatest. And this wouldn't be the last time. Remember, when they go to the upper room, they're doing the same thing. This is just one of a couple of times recorded in the Gospels. By the way, here's a question I never really contemplated until now. Greatest what? You know, when Muhammad Ali burst on the scene as Cassius Clay in 1964, I am the greatest! Well, we didn't, I mean, you might not have liked him, but you had no doubt what he was the greatest in. I'm the greatest boxer. And by greatest, what did these disciples mean? Best? Most authoritative? Most successful? I know one thing for sure. Pride was driving them. MacArthur points out that pride ruins unity, reveals depravity, rejects authority, and reacts with exclusivity. Notice why John and company tried to stop him. Look at the text. Because he does not what? Because he doesn't what? He doesn't follow us. Not because he doesn't follow Jesus, because apparently he did. Not because he was ineffective in his efforts, because apparently he was. And it wasn't always this case. I mean, talk about pragmatism. Do you you remember the story of the sons of Sceva? Do you remember that story? It's one of the funniest things you'll ever read. It's in in Acts chapter 19. What happens is uh, these guys... uh, uh, are what these sons of Sceva, a guy by the name of Sceva, sees what Paul is doing. He's casting out demons. They think, this is pretty cool. And so they come upon a guy who's demon-possessed. Well, look at the text. We have it here for the show. I think we got it anyway. And if we don't, I'll go there. Uh, we don't have it? Oh, there it is. But some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name of Jesus whom Paul proclaims. The sons of Sceva, Jewish high priest named Sceva, were doing this, but the evil spirit answered, this is, worth, this is eerie too, isn't it? Jesus, I know. I know Paul too, but I don't know you. Rah! And then he jumps on the guy, tears their clothes off, they go off running. This is theological pragmatism at its worst. They saw, they saw it happen, it's working for Paul, let's do this. And while John was not a pragmatist because he was a part of the group that was actually starting something others would copy, he was an exclusivist. And pride always leads to exclusivity. If it's not done my way, it ain't being done right. Amen? Thought I'd trick a few of them into an amen. I was trying to think of some contemporary models for this scene here we've just run into. Here's a couple of them. Jesus, we ran into someone who's leading a dozens to you, but he doesn't take the same position on the rapture, so we tried to stop him. Jesus, who ran into a gospel-believing group that's ministering to the homeless downtown, but they don't tell people to go to churches like ours, so we rightfully stopped him. I've got a whole bunch in my mind, but my favorite is this. Jesus, we encounter a church that stands on sound doctrine, preaches your gospel, plants other churches, but they don't have Baptists in their name. (laughs) I had to throw that in there. So we try to stop them. 
pride always leads to exclusivity. Always. It will always lead because you're, you're it, man. By the way, this would probably be a good time to revisit your image of John, the disciple. The author of the Gospel of John, the author of the Three Johns, the author of Revelation. Self-described repeatedly, I might add, in the self-effacing way as the one who laid his head on the breast of Jesus. It would be understandable if your image of him is soft and gentle, easygoing, incredibly affectionate follower of Jesus, right? But you would actually be better off imagining him as a petulant, reactive, angry, racist follower of Jesus. How's that for you? That's a different image, isn't it? I know what some of you are thinking, did did he say racist? Yeah, I did. I did. Just like some of us. In fact, all you got to do is look at the next couple of verses. Verse 51, look at this. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of him who went into the village of, of the Samaritans. That's the area to the north. Remembered the Jews. The only thing worse than a Gentile was a half. The only thing worse than a non-Jew was a half-Jew. And that was a Samaritan. They hated Samaritans. So they go there to preach there. But the people, verse 53, would not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, who? Brothers, James and John saw, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and turn them into crispy critters? And he rebuked them. In fact, I love the, if you've got New King James, it's got a little alternate extension of this where he says, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. I didn't come to destroy people's lives. I came to save them. Are we to think that this was the first and only group that ever rejected Jesus when the disciples went out? Of course not. But these were Samaritans. John was a Jew. And he and his brother actually go to a chat. They got a chapter and verse in the Old Testament. Remember Elijah? There's a, there's a group of 50 come in to try to get him and he smokes them. Fire comes down, they, and then another 50 come, and he smokes them. And the next 50 go, oh, please don't do it to us, don't do it to us, you know. And so James and John, you know, the, the, Jesus, the sons of Boanerges, sons of thunder. And by the way, that was not a compliment. They were angry men, and anger and pride always go together. Listen, there is nothing more debilitating, more dismantling, more divisive, more dismissive, more destructive, more downward to organizations, friendships, and churches than pride. And so in verse 47, Jesus, while they're arguing with one another over who is the greatest, whatever the greatest is, Jesus takes a child and puts it on his lap. This has to be shocking to them because Children, they literally were better seen and not heard. Even in Judaism, raised kids up more than other cultures, but still, you just didn't even listen to a kid before he was 12. Now he's got a little one, and he's making comparisons. He's making analogies. He's making an illustration. He makes illustrations out of them, even. And he says, whoever receives this child of my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me, for he who is least among you is what? He's greatest. 
I think something was starting to happen in John when this, all this happened. It's possible that as he observed Jesus defy the popular disdain of children and put this kid in his midst and make those comparisons, he might have thought, I wonder if what we did back there was right. And so he sort of blurts it out. Hey, you know, we, we ran into somebody who was casting out demons, but he doesn't follow us, so we told him to stop. And Jesus' reply, there's no middle ground. Don't stop him. He's on your side. I want to finish this morning with just a few thoughts in conclusion. First, and you can mark them down. There's five of them I'm going to give you one. There's no middle ground on Jesus. You're either for him or you are against him. You cannot be both. It's not possible. If an individual church or an individual or a church does not believe the gospel, if this church out there, whatever it is, you say the pastor preaches the truth, but the doctrine, the foundation of the church teaches sacramentalism, that baptism or confirmation or some good, good work is going to save you, that is not for Christ, that's against him. That's against the gospel, that's a false gospel. On the other hand, If we reject and resist brothers who faithfully uphold the gospel just because they don't follow our schematic, our theological construct, if we resist them, we resist Jesus himself. There's no middle ground here. This is not a call for a lack of discernment. And there's certainly going to be times where you say, you know what, just not comfortable with that. I get it. But let's take the pride and chuck it out the door. If somebody has a relate, you're either with Christ or you're not with him. It's one or the other. Secondly, there's no middle ground on results. This is personal. This is for you. You are either changed by the gospel or you're not. If you are utterly unfruitful having trusted Jesus as your Savior, you need to go back. It didn't take. You didn't have faith. You didn't place your faith in him. It's not true. Because the gospel will bring results. We're not, we don't base our ministry on the results. But neither do we deny the fact that results occur. When the gospel goes forth in its power, the dynamism kicks in. And if you've never been changed by the gospel, you've never been changed. And so believe on the Lord Jesus. Humble your heart to him. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. Recognize your lostness and your separation from him. Believe that he died and rose again for you personally and receive him as your savior. There's no middle ground. If anyone's in Christ, they're a new what? Creation. The wind blows where it wills. You hear the sound of it. You can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Everyone. Here's the third thing. There is no middle ground in our prayers for gospel-preaching churches. 
If a church declares Christ, we pray for them, we pray for their success, we pray for their growth, we pray for their power. I can remember years ago, we had a, a missionary, and he was, we kind of wondered about him anyway. He was just sort of a, kind of a goofy guy. Not much was getting done. He was on another foreign field. We never heard any decent results from his ministry at all. But I, I, because my, my predecessor was a real, like, uh, ultra right winger, and he had all, I got all kinds of stuff in the mail. I got this, I called it the Baptist Inquirer. It was a scandal sheet that came out every month. Seriously, it was a scandal sheet that came out every month exposing all the errors amongst Bible-believing churches. And it was just scandalous, and yet I read it. And I was going through this thing, and I came across our missionary, the one I just referred to. And he was criticizing, they had him criticizing and exposing certain errors within the agency that he served under. So I called him up. He said, oh, well, you know, I was kind of on my way out, out of the agency. They weren't supposed to put that in until I was out. Well, they beat you to it. He lasted to the next business meeting. He was out of there. Because apparently he didn't have a fruitful ministry, but he had time to criticize everybody else's, even the agency he served under. Ridiculous, hypo- hypocritical. There's no middle ground. If a church is preaching the gospel, we honor that church. doesn't mean you have to honor everything about it. It doesn't mean you have to honor, honor all the peripheries or the idiosyncrasies, the way they cross T's and dot I's. They might not be exactly the same, but we can honor them because they honor Jesus. And we can pray for them. So, there's no middle ground. Fourthly, there's no middle ground in rejoicing over God's work in other churches, right? That's why Paul said, whether it's in truth, whether it's in pretense, Christ is preached and I will rejoice. That's what Paul said. I didn't say that. That's what the Bible says. I didn't say that. And I have to tell you, I haven't always rejoiced. I haven't always been in the place where I could just always rejoice over what God was doing somewhere else because I had that mindset shoved down my throat that if every T wasn't crossed, every dot wasn't, every I wasn't dotted, then I couldn't honor them in any way. Listen, there's no middle ground here. We rejoice when God is doing a work, period. A young leader from another church called me not long ago, and he referred to a gospel-preaching church that was near his church. I was familiar with this church he was referring to, and here's what he said, and I quote, they're running bigger numbers, but they're not really preaching the gospel. And I, I stopped him. I said, are you, pardon me, are you serious? Well, I mean, you know, their people do this, and some of them do this. I said, you just said they don't preach the gospel. Well, <laughs> I squarely rebuked him. I said, what kind of an arrogant comment is that? I called him right on the carpet. Now, I knew, I know what he meant. They don't, they don't see things the way he saw things in his church. I get that. He wouldn't have been comfortable in that church. I get that too. That's why he was going to the other one. 
But why do we have to spend our lives throwing ballistic missiles into somebody else's camp? This is ridiculous. Rejoice in what God is doing. Period. Finally, there's no middle ground on the gospel. You either believe it or you don't believe it. Do you? When I talked about John as being you know, our image and knocking down that image, see, I, I don't think the image that you had of John was wrong. I just wanted to see what it was. I, I wanted you to see what it was before he became the apostle of love. Before he became the one who talked about loving the brethren. The whole first John, love the brethren. How can he write about those things? I'll give it to you in a word, grace. The grace of God that changed John will change you. It'll change your prejudice. It'll change your racism. It'll change your exclusivity. It'll change a lot of things. And it keeps on changing, doesn't it? That's the reason why you can be here and having known the Lord for 40 years and not be afraid to say, Lord, are you challenging me to change this morning? You should be like that from time to time, shouldn't you? But some of you just need to be changed. You need the gospel to change you. You need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because there's no middle ground. If you die in your sins, you go to hell, period. You don't get another chance. If you die in your sins, you die in your sins. If you die in Christ, your life is hid with Christ and God. That's a good place to be. So die in Christ. Place your faith in him, his death and resurrection. Because there's no middle ground. Let's pray.